Hey, everybody. It is Wednesday, October 18th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, I hear it in your voice. Are you doing okay? <laughs> I am okay. I sound a lot worse, I think, than I feel. Mm. And we record late at night. So I also sound worse than I did earlier today. Got it. Well, I'm going to try to preserve your voice. Um, <laughs> every word matters on today's podcast. Though I'll add one thing, um, Jill, I did get a message from a number of people who listened to yesterday's pod saying, can you please give me whatever speech you gave Jill? Because I'm freaking out right now. <laughs> and I would love to hear what you told her before the pod yesterday. As a matter of fact, I got some messages like that as well. And I did speak <laughs> to a few people on the phone because I have a lot of friends who, who are just in a panic right now about the current situation and the state of the world. Yeah, And I said, you know what, Mosh, as I mentioned on the podcast yesterday, gave me kind of this reality check and a few deep breaths. I do wonder, Mosh, if you feel the same way today <laughs> after the events that took place. Well, we're going to tell people about it. Listen, I'm not a seer. I'm not a prophet. So I cannot say with certainty what will happen and what won't happen. All I can go with is recent history, long-term history. Um, obviously, this world is very unpredictable. And this war, unfortunately, is very unpredictable. And, you know, will take various turns, especially in this social media environment that we're in. Things explode online before we have facts. It's something I brought up on Instagram. But you know what, Jill? I'm still an optimist. Even after today. <laughs> and that's what we love about you, Mosh. All right, let's get to some headlines here. We'll start, as mentioned, with the latest from the Middle East. A blast at a hospital in Gaza reportedly kills hundreds of Palestinians. Israel blames a faulty Islamic jihad rocket. Hamas blames Israel. Regardless, the Arab world is outraged. Jordan has canceled its upcoming summit with President Biden as he heads to the region today. And protests have erupted throughout the region. To U.S. politics, Jim Jordan falls short in his first House Speaker vote. His next attempt is later this morning. First, it was California. Now the FDA is facing pressure to ban red dye in food nationwide. You know those fake reviews on Amazon and TripAdvisor? Well, now those companies and others are trying to do something about it. Plus, Mosh, a story from The Wall Street Journal. It's getting too expensive to have fun. Prices for concert tickets and live events has exploded. This is something that I have been talking about for a while, and I know other people feel it. It's, it's too expensive to go see a live show. Jill, did we need this story today? We try to flow the podcast and end on a good note, but we can discuss it. I still think we can have fun. <laughs> they literally were like, it's too expensive to have fun. But you can have, listen, you, of course you can have fun in a variety of different ways. Yes. Plus, Mosh has on this day in history. I like to be in America. Okay, by me in America. The anniversary of one of my favorite musicals, Jill. We'll talk about that and how cheap the U.S. was able to get Alaska for from Russia in the 1860s and why, at the time, people thought it was a big mistake. Well, Mosh, I have a ton of questions. How cheap was Alaska? You're going to have to wait till the end. <laughs> I knew you out, were going to say that. <laughs> All right, let's start with the latest from the Middle East. On Tuesday, a deadly explosion at a hospital in northern Gaza reportedly killing hundreds of Palestinians, many of whom had been displaced from their homes and were taking shelter at the hospital. But now there are conflicting claims about who is responsible. So Palestinian officials, a.k.a. Hamas, 
blame ongoing Israeli airstrikes. But Israel is strongly denying any involvement, instead saying that the explosion was from a, quote, failed rocket launch by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. That is a rival terrorist group in Gaza. Yeah, we should note, if you already thought you had a command for Gaza and how complicated it is, there's a Palestinian authority, but Hamas runs the place. There's smaller splinter terror groups, uh, competitors, and that includes Islamic Jihad. Uh, So you have the Israeli military, you have Hamas, you have Islamic Jihad, you have splinter forces, you have Palestinian authority. There's a lot of folks involved here, but I'll let you continue to uh, lay out here, Jill, that he said, he said, he said. So Israel says because of the Iron Dome, they know exactly where and when rockets are fired from. They also say that they have an audio recording of Gaza militants in which they are talking in Arabic and indicate that a misfired Islamic Jihad rocket was responsible. So they did say they'd release that recording, which again is in Arabic. But as of this recording of our podcast on Tuesday night, they have not yet done so. Israel's also put out what they say is video evidence to prove that the blast actually did come from an Islamic Jihad rocket that had misfired. A spokesperson for the IDF telling CNN, categorically, we do not intentionally strike any sensitive facilities and definitely not hospitals. Hamas maintains, though, that it was Israel. They have not presented any evidence, at least not as of this recording. But Mosh, regardless, the backlash has started. And like usual in the Middle East, people believe whatever fits their narrative on either side. It's a place in the world where you choose your own adventure. So in Jordan, protesters tried to storm the Israeli embassy in Amman, lighting fires outside of the embassy. Protests also broke out in Turkey and Morocco and in the West Bank. Jordan's King Abdullah blamed Israel. He described the incident as a massacre and a war crime. He declared three days of mourning for the people who were killed in the hospital strike. And President Biden no longer going to be traveling to Jordan. Yeah, this has already changed his itinerary. Uh, Jill, we should note King Abdullah, Jordan. Uh, The country's 50 to 70 percent Palestinians, depending on who you believe, what census you believe in Jordan. Also, the queen there happens to be Palestinian. So he's walking a tightrope on the issue. In Lebanon, Hezbollah, another terrorist organization, has called for a day of rage today. They said, let Wednesday be a day of rage against the enemy. They called the strike a massacre and a brutal crime. And the political leader of Hamas, Ismail Haniyeh, he says he holds the U.S. responsible for the hospital attack because of its support for Israel. And Moshe, this, of course, all playing out on social media, basically in real time. Yeah, there's fake stuff, there's real stuff, you know, reactions, there's statements, you know, notably, you know, you couldn't have said this about many wars, but the fact that it took the Israelis an hour to, you know, assess whether they did it and determine, no, no, this was definitely Islamic Jihad based on our um, records, that was an hour where Hamas early got its narrative out there. And then combine that with influencers who purport to speak on behalf of the Israeli government, fake Facebook pages, the Israeli government editing some tweets and initially putting out a video that turned out not to be accurate. But then they put an Al Jazeera clip that actually they say shows the uh, Islamic Jihad rocket rising and then falling. So there's a lot here. Uh, The Israeli military saying that that missile salvo from Gaza passed in the vicinity of the hospital at the moment it was hit. So basically, the Israelis were tracking this huge salvo. There's also a a telegram thread from Hamas saying, we're about to launch a whole bunch of rockets. Minutes later, those rockets are launched. uh, And then there's the explosion at the hospital. So they're trying to connect the dots here. But, you know, many people have very ingrained feelings about this. They're going to believe one truth. And 
We've certainly heard from several hundred of them as of this recording, Jill. We'll probably get to thousands by the morning. Outraged from one perspective or the other. We should note, despite the audio recording, we're going to be waiting the Israeli release of that. A spokesperson for the Islamic Jihad terror group denying Israel's allegations, saying, no, it was totally the Israelis. Um, Jill, regardless, there's a whole bunch of innocent Palestinians dead here from this explosion. And let's not lose sight of that as the finger pointing continues. But the outrage, the narrative, especially, you know, as Hamas kind of got out there first saying this was definitely Israel led to the cancellation of the Jordan swing for President Biden. Also, the Palestinian Authority president, Mahmoud Abbas, a competitor to Hamas Islamic Jihad, in fact, uh, they're a thorn in his side. He canceled his meeting out of loyalty to those groups and the narrative with President Biden. Um, So he was set to meet with them. Instead, Abbas says he's traveling back to Ramallah, where, by the way, the Palestinians already hit the streets um, in that first hour, outraged at Israel, but also outraged the Palestinian Authority, who they feel are insufficiently defending um, the people as people get angrier and angrier as this war unfolds. Biden was expected, as you mentioned, to meet with the Jordanian leader. That ain't happening. He was supposed to meet with the Egyptian president, al-Sisi, to discuss humanitarian efforts. This is a fast-moving, fluid situation. So we'll see what ends up happening with the Egyptians. But already, this is not going according to plan for President Biden. These things move very quickly. And one thing I'll tell folks, and we said it on the Instagram account, as you assess each thing that happens, you have to think about like who this helps and who this hurts. Um, The one thing, you know, the Israelis have to make their case, right? Because we live in this era. Hamas has to make its case. Everyone has different levels of veracity. Um, We can say for the record here that uh, the the track record by the Israeli military and the Israeli government, they tend to be a hue closer to the truth in these situations than the Hamas terror group. You know, we're not going to both sides stuff, but at the same time, you know, There's a long track record there where at times the um, Israeli military has had to correct the record. So even Biden, as he was leaving Tuesday evening, uh, put out a statement saying he was outraged by it in terms of the death toll, etc., and didn't ascribe blame as of Tuesday night. Now, we might wake up on Wednesday morning and it might be a different story, but we're watching all of this unfold. But one thing to keep in mind, who does this hurt? Who does this help? Definitely the Israelis who have the president of the United States coming in an unprecedented way. This is not something they needed whether true or not, the narrative that they hit a hospital and killed a bunch of civilians at a time where President Biden really is sticking his neck out there for the Israelis and giving them whatever they need ahead of an imminent invasion. Moshe, to be a fly on the wall on Air Force One as Biden is just watching this unfold, I mean, he is going, the shame of it too is that some real good could have happened from his trip, meeting with a lot of these Arab leaders. Perhaps they could have figured out a way to get humanitarian aid into Gaza, maybe some type of negotiation on the hostages. And unfortunately, that's just not going to happen. Jill, the Middle East, so many people have tried with very optimistic viewpoints to solve some things there. And we're watching unfold at least the last few decades uh, of attempts and failures. But there's a lot of high-level diplomacy happening here. There's a lot of what the public message is, what the private message is, why people are saying certain things, um, a lot of agendas. Jill, uh, we posted on Instagram, somebody said, you know, is X a neutral voice when it comes to these issues? And I'm like, you're not going to find a neutral voice in the world when it comes to the Middle East, whether you're talking about an NGO, whether you're talking about a government, authoritarian, democracy, foreign, local. Ultimately, it is a very immensely challenging thing. There's no black and whites. There's no simplicity here. Sorry to tell everyone. Um, And so what you just have to take in is that 
things are going to be complicated. Um, the good guys will do bad things. The bad guys, at times, you're like, well, why am I rooting for them? And even the simplicity of good guys and bad guys, whew, let's not even get into that. So we see it playing out in the Middle East. We see it playing out on college campuses across the country. Jill, I hate to use the word unprecedented, but these are unprecedented times. We don't know how this is going to play out. But uh, we do hope that peaceful voices prevail here uh, before this escalates further. As for the situation on the ground, at least again, as of this recording Tuesday night, Israel has not launched its expected ground invasion into Gaza. Hamas continuing to fire rockets into Israel. The humanitarian situation in Gaza continuing to get worse. There is humanitarian aid and it's piling up at Gaza's border with Egypt, despite diplomatic efforts to open a corridor from uh, that Rafah crossing. Yeah, let's hope that that at least comes out of the Biden visit, that um, aid goes to the people who need it. Now to politics here at home. In the first round of voting, Republican Congressman Jim Jordan failing to secure the number of votes needed to become the next Speaker of the House. That leaves the lower chamber without a leader for at least another day. We're going on two weeks now. Mosh, the word of this podcast, unprecedented. (laughs) Jordan says the next vote will happen today at 11 a.m., Hoping the second time's the charm, he said he had good discussions with his Republican colleagues and some of the holdouts. Now, in round one, 20 Republicans voted against him, meaning that Jordan won just 200 votes, falling short of the 217 needed. Democrats, as expected, again, nominated minority leader Hakeem Jeffries. He received 212 votes. Yeah, Democrats are like, keep us out of it. And actually, we are sort of enjoying this chaos. Now, is that good for the country? Probably not. Is that good for next year's midterm elections? Probably. So um, some of you have expressed that frustration being like, well, can't we just like focus on the country's problems? And Democrats are like, no, we're going to sit here eating popcorn while the Republicans fight it out. So what happens now, Jordan will try to cobble together these votes. You know, his hope is that those 20 or so votes, that they were protest votes, they got it out of their system, that he'll convince them to come over. They just wanted to make their case. You know, some of them voted for McCarthy, a handful voted for Scalise, who had to withdraw his name last week, as the Jordan wing of the party uh, effectively blocked him from being the next speaker. Notably, though, Punchbowl News, they do a Capitol Hill newsletter, very inside baseball, but really good reporting over there. Uh, They say things are not looking good for Jordan as of late Tuesday night and could get worse, as in the second and third votes, he might see more Republicans drop off and vote for others as opposed to vote for him. So the second vote, if it happens today, will be crucial as uh, are things going in the right direction. Notably, those 20 Republicans who voted against him. Not all moderates. You know, we know that some moderates have an issue with Jordan because he is on the far right, but included in those 20 included some conservatives who don't trust him. Also, he's made some enemies uh, through the years. Uh, and there are some who just don't want to reward that wing of the party. He founded the House Freedom Caucus. Uh, this is the far right group. They brought down McCarthy. And there's some members of the party who are like, we cannot have this group that wants to shut down the government, do extreme things lead our party. So Jordan hopes to have voting wrapped up by today and be the new speaker. But again, watch those votes, because if he's getting less, or he still has like 14 to 15 by the second vote who are voting against him, this could be a long battle for him. And he might not be the next speaker of the House. Keep in mind, McCarthy did fight it out in January, took him 15 rounds uh, to be the next speaker. Will Jordan do that? Or will the party have to retreat and find some sort of palatable alternative? One scenario, Jill, 
that uh, speaker pro tempore. That's Patrick McHenry. You might notice him at the end. He gavels them in and out with a very big bang. He seems very angry lately. He was a McCarthy <laughs> ally. He has no official powers right now. This is a new position. But if the Jordan thing doesn't work out and they can't find a speaker, they might have to say, you know what? We're going to give some power to the temporary speaker because we ain't going to have a permanent one very soon. And so, Jill, the word of the podcast today, that would be unprecedented. <laughs> we'll see what happens. So I actually didn't get to watch any of the votes, but I am on our Mo News group chat and somebody had commented that apparently McHenry loved using the gavel. What what happened? What's the deal? <laughs> oh, uh, so if you watch at the end of the vote when he gavels um, in session and out of session, but particularly out of session because like things are not going as planned, he has an extra anger when he slams that large gavel down to put them into recess. Like it doesn't feel like, Hey guys, we're going to recess. It's like, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Like he's pounding meat. Oh yeah. That meat would be flattened. We will try to put together a montage over on the Instagram account of like Patrick McHenry, just trying to break the gavel. All right, we have plenty of more news to get to, but now we want to just thank some of our sponsors. We have talked a lot on this podcast about how we only want to endorse things that we really love, and Bolin Branch Bedding and Sheets is definitely one of those things. We have had them for a few months in my house, and we absolutely love them. We're now clearly in the fall, but Bolin Branch definitely made the summer of record heat a bit easier. They have very soft and breathable sheets. Bowl and Branch, that is B-O-L-L and Branch Sheets. They are made with organic cotton. And without some of the harsh chemicals that are used by other brands, the sheets actually get softer with every wash. I can attest to that. Right now, they are offering a special deal to the MoNews community. You can get 15% off your first order when you use the promo code MoNews at BowlandBranch.com. That is Bowl and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Branch.com. The promo code is MoNews, M-O-N-E-W-S. There are some exclusions, so see the site for details. And we also want to thank another longtime sponsor here at Mo News, AG1. I first tried the Athletic Greens AG1 powder last year when I was having trouble getting all my nutrients. It's just one scoop of the AG1 powder with a glass of water in the morning. It's easy, it's quick, and it lets you get on with your day knowing that you've gotten over 75 important ingredients, tons of vitamins and minerals. It also includes pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. This is essentially a replacement for all those vitamins out there. You know this is basically one-stop shopping with AG1, and they're offering a special deal to the Mo News community with your first purchase of AG1. Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1 when you're on the go. You can visit right now, drinkag1.com. That is drinkag, the number one, dot com slash mo news to take advantage of this offer where you can get a discounted monthly subscription or try it just one time for just one month again that is drinkag1.com slash mo news for this special deal to really start to take ownership of your health okay time now for the speed read from npr there is some new pressure on the fda to take action on synthetic food coloring red number three after california passed a law to ban it last week So California, as we reported here, became the first state to ban four food additives, including red number three. And now public health advocates are pushing to remove the dye from the food supply nationwide. One doctor, Peter Lurie, he heads the Center for Science and the Public Interest. That's one of the groups that filed a petition last October with the FDA to ban the use of red number three. 
He says that he thinks the action in California will, quote, make it more likely that they grant our petition. Back in 1990, the FDA halted the use of red number three in cosmetics and externally applied drugs, things like medicated ointments or lotions, based on a study that it can cause cancer in rats. But the FDA continued to allow the dyes in foods, and it has become ubiquitous in the U.S. food supply. Since then, multiple studies have linked consumption of synthetic dyes to behavioral issues in children, including hyperactivity. Synthetic food dyes like red number three give that bright, flashy coloring to foods, making them more appealing to the eye. Yeah, if you look at the back of uh, various candies, uh, Peeps, Hot Tamales, Candy Corn, Pez, Fruit by the Foot, Ring Pops, Double Bubble um, are among those that use red dye number three. Jill, you mentioned the FDA made the decision back in 1990. You know how long ago that was? That was the same year that Beverly Hills 90210 premiered. Most, you were on paternity leave the day that actually I did on this day, and it was the Beverly Hills 90210 launch. And I felt sad that you weren't there because I have such passionate feelings about Beverly Hills 90210. It was one of these that I really could, could talk about. All right, but I digress. I just thought of that when I saw the year 1990. But let's get back to red dye number three here, because what's interesting is California has made a major move here in banning it. And that's slated to take effect in 2027 in just about four years. But that would create a patchwork of state requirements that will increase food costs, create confusion amongst consumers, especially parents. And so the California EPA reviewed a body of evidence uh, on the synthetic dyes and found that dyes consumed in food can negatively impact children's behavior. Out of 25 studies they looked at, more than half identified a positive association between artificial food coloring and behavioral outcomes when it comes to concentration, when it comes to hyperactivity. Now, nationally, they'll have to figure out at the FDA what to do about it. But an FDA spokesperson tells NPR that they are actively reviewing the petition uh, post-California's move, and they will assess whether there's, quote, sufficient data to revoke its use. In regards to the cancer risk identified back in 1990, the FDA has argued until now that was just specific to rats, not people. But uh, Peter Lurie and the groups uh, you mentioned earlier Uh, They argue that that's not the case. And so there's a dispute here, uh, and they're hoping the FDA will consider red dye number three now on the national level. From The New York Times, the AI wars continue. The Biden administration on Tuesday announced additional limits on sales of advanced semiconductor chips by American firms. The goal is to limit China's progress on supercomputing and artificial intelligence. The rules appear likely to halt most shipments of advanced semiconductors from the United States to Chinese data centers, which use them to produce models capable of artificial intelligence. More U.S. companies seeking to sell China advanced chips or the machinery used to make them will be required to notify the government of their plans or obtain a special license. The Biden White House argues that China's access to advanced technology is dangerous because it could aid that country's military in tasks like guiding hypersonic missiles, setting up advanced surveillance systems, cracking U.S. codes. Leading AI experts have warned that the technology, we've talked about this on the podcast, if not properly managed, could pose an existential threat to humanity. In the long run here, these limits could also weaken China's economy, given that AI is transforming industries. But at the same time, the U.S. worries about mastery in China and their ability to outpace the U.S. when it comes to AI. Others worry that this will actually limit U.S. influence, forcing China to innovate, develop their own systems, create this kind of two internets, 
two AI systems. So there's a lot of arguments here back and forth. But in particular, you have noticed a trend line that Biden has followed through with a lot of the stuff Trump was doing on the latter end when it comes to trade agreements, when it comes to limits on China, you know, feeling like, well, we could play kumbaya for a while with them. It has gotten much, much more contentious through the years. Now, this AI related uh, limit doesn't apply to everything. Apparently, they're going to exempt chips that are purely used for commercial applications like smartphones, laptops, electric vehicles, etc. So US companies will not be um, disadvantaged in that way. But this is just sort of the latest keeping tabs on US China that we're trying to do for everybody. From the Associated Press, some of the most used platforms for travel and online shopping say that they're going to team up to battle fake reviews. Amazon, the review site Glassdoor, and also Trustpilot, and companies like Expedia, Booking.com, and TripAdvisor, they made an announcement saying they're launching a coalition that aims to protect access to, quote, trustworthy consumer reviews. They're going to look at best practices for hosting online reviews and share methods on how to detect fake ones. And that will include developing standards for what constitutes a fake review and sharing info about how bad actors operate. Phony reviews have long plagued online marketplaces despite their efforts to eradicate it. Much of the problem is fueled by brokers who solicit fake customer reviews through social media platforms, encrypted messaging apps, and other channels in exchange for money, free items, and other benefits. Now, brokers can solicit positive reviews to boost sales for business or sellers, and they can also post negative reviews for competitors in order to tank their sales. That is not nice, Mosh. <laughs> not at all. And it's something that uh, companies and the government is looking to take more seriously here. Last month, Amazon said two review brokers in China were sentenced to two and a half years in prison and three years probation after using messaging apps to advertise and sell fake reviews to Amazon selling accounts. The company has filed a flurry of lawsuits in the past year against operators that are doing similar things. You know, reviews matter. I certainly look at them. I know you do uh, and everyone else does. And if you can't trust the reviews, how do you know what you're getting is legit? So there's a lot of bogus stuff out there. Federal regulators here in the U.S. have said they're aiming to crack down on bogus reviews that deceive consumers. Uh, in June, the Federal Trade Commission proposed a new rule that, among other things, would prohibit businesses from selling or obtaining fake reviews, suppressing honest reviews, and selling fake social media engagement. So this is another case of the government catching up to technology. Businesses would also be prohibited from creating or controlling a website that claims to provide independent opinions about its products. The whole like, hey, have you checked out the Citizens for a Better X, you know, sponsored by X company? Apparently, that continues to be a thing. Uh, that's what they call review hijacking. And so there's a lot the government's looking into here in terms of what the violations, what the penalties will be. Uh, the companies themselves that you mentioned earlier, TripAdvisor, Amazon, etc., they had a conference last year. They're going to be following up this December at a second conference organized by Amazon to figure out what to do about all these fake reviews. And finally, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast from the Wall Street Journal, it is getting too expensive to have fun. Ticket prices for live entertainment events from Taylor Swift concerts to National Football League games and high season Disney theme park visits rose at a startling rate this year, triggering a phenomenon that analysts have dubbed funflation. Everything's got inflation now. <laughs> so families coughed up large sums saved during the pandemic to attend live events and parks this year. Friends treated themselves to memorable performances. 
Mothers took their daughters to stadiums packed with friendship bracelet-clad concertgoers to see Taylor Swift's Eras Tour. And now some Americans are feeling tapped out. Nearly 60% say that they've had to cut back on spending on live entertainment this year because of rising costs. That's according to a Wall Street Journal survey. About 37% of respondents say they just can't keep up with the rising price of events that they want to attend. And more than 20% say that they are willing to take on debt to continue to be able to afford their favorite entertainment activities. And about 26% say that they don't spend any money at all on live entertainment. That is up from 16% before the pandemic. Jill, is this considered live entertainment? Because we come to people for free. And I think we're fun most days. (laughs) Maybe we need to do some live uh, shows uh, and we'll try to keep it really affordable, folks, as not to contribute to funflation. But this is a serious issue. You know, everything has gotten more expensive and the cost of admissions and fees rose faster than, if you can believe it, the price of food, gasoline and other staples last year. And they've continued this year. One analyst says anything live, anything experiential is just going to go through the roof. Keep in mind that a lot of people, you know, were locked in there through COVID. So the idea of live experiential stuff became highly coveted and then therefore highly expensive in the past year. Americans were on track to spend about $95 billion this year on tickets to amusements, including movies, live entertainment, sporting events. That was as of August data. So we'll continue to track that. Live music itself has undergone supercharged ticket prices. We've discussed this with the Taylor show, with the Beyonce show, et cetera, because of strong demand uh, from some consumers who are willing to pay exorbitant, exorbitant prices to see it. Uh, So keeping with a theme here, I'm the problem. It's me, consumers. One of the reasons things have gotten so uh, expensive, analysts say that they're seeing record attendance everywhere. Everything is sold out. We talked earlier this week about the premiere of the Taylor movie about the concert. You know, that's sold out. People, you know, are shelling out to watch a movie about a concert. And as we talk about concerts, for the first time, the top five touring acts globally, that's Taylor, Bruce Springsteen, Harry Styles, Elton John, and Ed Sheeran, each racked up more than $100 million in sold ticket revenue just in the first half of this year. Over the past two decades, there were usually no more than two artists at that level. When it comes to the price here, the average price for Swift tickets sold at StubHub was just under $1,100. Which is wild. With some seats going for thousands of dollars. Beyonce and Harry Styles tickets averaged between $380 and $400. And then even soccer in America, not a very popular sport, but Lionel Messi, has joined MLS. The price of the tickets to go see him in Miami, they're up to $250 a piece. It used to be 30 bucks to see a soccer game here in the US. I'm glad you mentioned StubHub because that was the problem. There's so much demand that most people can't get the tickets when they first go on sale with Ticketmaster or you know whomever is whomever's selling them and that they have to get them on the secondhand market like a StubHub. And the prices are outrageous. The, I've looked all summer at concerts that I wanted to see and I was like, I can't, I can't rationalize hundreds of dollars, you know, to see whoever is playing. No, you're going to the Taylor movie theater show. And I'm splurging on popcorn. That's, you know, that's the night. All right, now time for On This Day in History. As promised, we're going to start in Alaska. The year is 1867. After a lot of opposition, a deal negotiated by the Secretary of State at the time, William Seward, for the purchase of the Russian colony of Alaska was approved. And on this day in 1867, the U.S. flag was flown over Alaska's first capital, Sitka. The capital would eventually move to Juneau in the early 20th century. But when it comes to Alaska, the purchase was pretty controversial despite the cost. So 
The U.S. spent $7 million at the time to buy the entirety of Alaska. It was actually called Seward's Folly, you know, Seward's Mistake, uh, because everyone's like, why do we want that land up there? It's unusable. It's uninhabitable. Uh, by the way, $7 million at the time, that's $150 million in today's dollars. Still a pretty good deal for Alaska, which is about the fifth size of the entirety of the U.S. Uh, that is a cool 42 cents an anchor in modern terms, Jill. Uh, of course, with the gold rush and the oil that's found there, Alaska has more than paid for itself. 42 cents an acre. You can't even buy anything for 42 cents now. Well, William Seward, who, by the way, if you're in New York and you're ever in Madison Square Park, there's a statue for William Seward. He was uh, Lincoln's secretary of state. He made the deal for Alaska. And, uh, you know, I think that he would say today, what folly? All right, we're going to fast forward to the 20th century. On this day in 1983, 40 years ago, the EPA puts out a report saying the earth is going to heat up starting in the 1990s. Criticized at the time. Looks like uh, <laughs> they the were right. folks who <laughs> put that report together were on to something, Jill. Don't say they didn't warn us about climate change, folks. On this day in 1985, the Nintendo Entertainment System released in North America. Jill, did you have Nintendo growing up? I did. Little Super Mario Brothers, Tetris, Duck, Duck Hunt. Hunt. Yeah, Duck yes. Hunt. I loved Paperboy, which I feel like doesn't get enough love. Well, I'm glad you're giving it some love on this podcast. <laughs> When's the last time Paperboy was mentioned? Um, so Nintendo turning 38 years old today in North America. On this day in 1991, Clarence Thomas becomes the second black American to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. Of course, he is still on the court today. We won't go into depth there. There's obviously controversy, et cetera, um, related to him. We've discussed on the pod before, but made history on this day in 1991. <laughs> On this day in 1961, the acclaimed musical film West Side Story, an adaptation of the Broadway play, was released in American theaters. It would go on to win 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Has there ever been better snaps in a song? <laughs> when you're a jet, you're yeah. a, there's um, I don't know how many of you are musical theater people, but amazing soundtrack. Jill, we saw there's been so many remakes on Broadway. We saw the most recent one before COVID, which was like not very good, I'll say. Um, and of course, Spielberg recently remade West Side Story as a film. It's sort of one of these musicals that just, you know, is constantly people feel like they can do a new version of. The theme of it, I feel like also lives on, right? Like the Jets versus the Sharks, a love story. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there, right? It's a it's a modern iteration of Romeo and Juliet uh, meets the streets of New York between the Irish and the Puerto Ricans. Anyway, finally here on this day, 35 years ago, this was a uh, a popular show in our household growing up, Jill. Roseanne, starring Roseanne Barr, premiered on ABC. Did you watch the Roseanne reboot? I did not, but there's a lot of controversy associated with that. I feel like Roseanne herself has also said some really absurd things through the years yeah, she... <laughs> i think she got kicked off a reboot uh, i was gonna say was me. she even on yeah. the reboot <laughs> i think she was canceled she was like one of the original people before canceling was a thing <laughs> like she was canceled but you know we loved it growing up in the chicago area because it depicts the chicago area family it depicts a imperfect family beyond imperfect family you know lower middle class etc um john goodman some good folks on that show and, you know, it told a story that you weren't really seeing on network television at that time. 
All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. Moshe, I'm so happy I got through this podcast with my voice. I wasn't sure, but I, I feel like I almost picked up steam as we went. All right, Jill, I want you to drink a lot of tea. I want you to save your voice. So same bad time tomorrow we can <laughs> tape another pod. All right, guys. Uh, if you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. As you know, we like the real reviews, not the fake reviews. We only have real reviews over uh, if you read them over on Apple Podcasts, but please leave us a real review only if you genuinely like us and genuinely want to give us a five-star hint hint. Uh, that would be great. <laughs> okay, bye, everybody. Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.